Hello and welcome to the Non-Tech Founders Podcast, fortnightly conversations about running a business as a non-technical founder. I'm Laura. And I'm Nathan. Join us as we navigate the developer-dominated world of entrepreneurship, bootstrapping and beyond. In today's episode, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about the ups and downs of being a non-technical founder and how you can build a product business when you can't build the actual product. But first, we thought we would do a bit of an update because it's been a while and uh, I think we've had a few things going on. So what have you been up to, Nathan? I, I've been up to I've been up to loads, but I actually want to hear about what you've been up to because you've been away on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah. Uh, holiday, I don't know if that's uh, the right word. Now I have a toddler. Holiday is no longer a holiday. It's very much work, more work than work. But it was nice. It was really nice to go away and to just not have to do anything work related at all I didn't do a single email or anything so it was really nice but I struggled with the jet lag when I came back because we went to the states and coming back to the UK uh, the jet lag is always it always just screws me up because you end up having to get up really really early which feels like two o'clock in the morning and then at night you're so tired all day but then at night you get like wide awake and um yeah I, I hate jet lag that's the I've never, downside I've never had jet lag I, don't, I have uh, no idea what it's like it's horrible it's just well it's okay when you're going the other way when you're going to the states it's actually really nice because you just get up really early and it's lovely and you feel so productive and great and you can go to bed early I have no issue with going to bed early um but this way it's just awful because uh, for me anyway it's just not fun but I'm pretty much over it now and um yeah, the holiday was nice. It was nice to get away. One cool thing that happened right before I left, which I think we spoke about in a previous episode, was I redesigned half the client portal website. Mm, yeah. It basically went live right before I went away. And as I was going away, it turned out that we have had a massive spike in sales for client portal. And wow. at, at one point, it was looking like we were getting 50% more <gasps> no sales, way. which is just amazing for the for the number of people like we have you know a decent amount of sales so it's not like 50% of two it's you know 50% of <laughs> I don't even know the number but it's a really decent amount it's not actually that high now and then Black Friday kind of put a bit of a spanner in the works because we always get a spike at Black Friday I need to let it run for a bit longer to see what the actual impact was but I've been looking at my Google Analytics and my bounce rates like way down and time on pages are up sales seem to be up so the yeah the redesign so far has just gone so well and now I'm so excited to do the rest of the website I just don't have any time that's um, amazing and is yeah. all the traffic that's so those bounce rates that are going down time on site are there are they people still hitting from the same sources yeah same keywords same referring directories and all that stuff yeah everything is just people search for client portal wordpress or just client portal or something like that and um, yeah, nothing else has changed. So it's it's just so good. It's one of those things where you sort of wonder because I hear people say, oh, you know, founders can sometimes get caught up in the whole, oh, let's redesign the website that will solve all our problems. And then it doesn't solve all their problems. Um, so I was a bit like, oh, I might, is this just like a vanity project for me? It just shows how powerful design can be um, just in terms of the first impression. Uh, because the copy pretty much stayed the same. The copy didn't change. So I can't say that it, there was anything other than the look of the homepage is just totally different. And we added things like the only 
change we added was um different industries which i think also made a really big difference but yeah it just goes to show design is important which is nice it's that what's the word is the uh is either the silent hero or the silent villain of any product or web page because if it's terrible people notice but if it's great they don't notice per se but obviously have those it has those benefits that you know people hang around longer they they, they dig in more they they have a higher sense of trust and everything which obviously then reflects in you know whatever the result might be in this case more sales which is amazing you must yeah. be super happy <laughs> yeah i'm really happy i'm mostly i'm a bit gutted that it just went live right at black friday because that does change things a little bit and i need to see I just, I need to wait. I need to be patient to see what the real effect is. But so far it's all looking good and I'm very, and did very you, happy. Did you, run Black Friday, did you run a Black Friday deal on there as well? I did, yeah. So I ran a Black Friday deal. I do one every year. A few years ago, it, you know, it went really well, um, but not as well as previous years because I think everyone's just getting fed up of Black Friday, to be honest. Um, and yep. there's just too much going on. I know I am. I don't really buy anything on Black Friday anymore unless there's something that I had already previously said to myself that I wanted to buy. I'm going to wait to Black Friday to see if they do something and then I'll buy it. But it's just too much, too many emails, too much going on. So I always do something because I know that people do wait for Black Friday to see if I'll do anything. Yeah, so I'll, I'll still continue to do it. But I feel like the heyday for me anyway is was maybe like four or five years ago for black friday mm -hmm. yeah did you do anything i moaned on twitter about black friday i did that oh. um because i was also sick of getting emails from people that i hadn't heard of for years you know when you sign up for something you actually think that you've unsubscribed and invariably you end up hearing from them on black friday and so i was just all these companies that i had no recollection of from years ago sending me deals for things that i'm not interested in at all so yeah, so I had a bit of a moan on Twitter about that. But ironically enough, about a week after, four or five days later, I did actually send a, an, an update email to people on the Feature Flux list. And it was kind of the, the typical apology for not, for not being in touch sooner. And also letting everyone know that we're about 80% through the code now. So there's been quite a lot of advancement on this. I think the, the last uh, update I gave in Feature Flux on here, I think was you could log in and that was it. You could log in, you could create an account and log in. But it's about 80% done now, so that, which is super exciting. But um, so I kind of said to them, look, this is the pricing now. This is the current pricing. If you want, I'd love to give you this monthly plan for the whole year, but for like for $99. I think at the moment it's like $49 for five, you, five team members. And I said, you can have the whole thing for $99. And I didn't get one single, <laughs> I didn't get one single sign up on that. No, I actually sent it to a couple of people. Well, I sent it to a few people actually outside of the mailing list afterwards, like people I know and trust and, and help and stuff. And I actually got feedback from a couple of people saying, because I reminded them of who I was and feature flux was very briefly. I kind of, well, I, I did that, but I didn't, uh, I just said, you know, it's going to be super, a super great deal for you. Here it is, blah, blah, blah. I didn't go into at all about actually why feature flux was going to be of any benefit to them i kind of rewrote some of it uh, i was actually told to to email everyone again and talk about actually how it can help them and everything but a couple of good things did come of the people i contacted as well so product manager i used to work with as a freelancer for an agency in wales he got back to me he now works for a, a huge fintech based out of cardiff and he said, look, it's going to be a hard sell to get something new in as it is at any, any enterprise uh, level business. He said, but, you know, if you can, if I can get on a demo with you, 
uh, and I think it's going to have potential for us, then I'll do my very best to try and shoehorn it in. And he said, P.S. There's 150 people on my product team. <laughs> so I was like, oh, nice. okay. So that's still to be discussed. That's still to be looked at. And the other one was, again, I sent this email out to somebody I know from years ago who actually has a SaaS, but his audience is uh, design agencies. So he looked at it, really liked the demo and said, let's record essentially um, a presentation, a webinar, and we'll get it out to, to our audience. So yeah, I was really pleased with that. Wasn't yeah. the desired effect of the email, but the, <laughs> but I think the, uh, the end result was, was pretty good. But I think that shows maybe the direction that you should be going in. If your product is more targeted to enterprise companies whether that's by design or just naturally that's the people who seem to want it you are probably going to be doing more high touch sales like you're going to be doing slide decks you're going to be doing presentations you're going to be doing custom offers for companies and getting it in front of people that way rather than what I did which was similar to what you tried which was send out a a mass email and see if you can get mm. people to sign up for like a lower price so maybe that's yeah. just telling you the way you I think it's a mix of the two things I think one I think yeah you're completely right it is definitely a product that is it has great benefits to larger product teams but and then the other side of that is as well is that I think there are a lot of people are on the list that are just along for the journey or signed up and you know weren't necessarily my target or sort of customer but yeah. um so and because the list isn't particularly big in fact it's tiny i think that that plays into that as well so yeah i think uh it's something i'll have to look at as time goes by and see if i get those initial customers on board and, and see who exactly fits in there so yeah. how do you feel about doing sales like that to enterprise companies it's very different from what i'm used to but yeah i i don't i don't have experience at enterprise sales enterprise level sales i don't think I would mind so much the sort of the personal, the one-on-one -on -one sort of demo and discussing needs and all that kind of stuff. I think I would find the time scale on this from initial contact to actually signing a contract could be months and months and months. And I think that could be quite <laughs> disheartening, especially if in the end you get a no. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that really, but I think that there might be a sweet spot more further down the scale though, where it's, you know, teams of say 10, or something that isn't enterprise you know but it's it's a reasonable size team to have on a to have on any product so i think it's too early to really say uh, you know who still who is going to benefit the most from this but i'm excited to see who is going to be that's for sure <laughs> yeah oh that's great well i'm glad you got a couple of good things out of it that's good i yeah, sure. seem to be both having a good month week fortnight <laughs> Yeah, I think things I think things are uh, picking up on my end for sure. It's good, but there's just so many there's so many aspects of of, of running a, a technical business, you know. Uh, <laughs> when As you're a non-technical founder. founder, yeah, exactly. Great, so great lead-in for what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so Thank I you. think we should probably dive into that. We haven't <laughs> looked at it at all, really, have we? Yeah, because we were sort of talking about it where our podcast is called The Non-Tech Founders, but we haven't done an episode dedicated to being a non-tech founder. And I know we've heard from people who listen, who say, hey, this pot, this is me. I'm a founder. I'm not a developer. Well, I want to be a founder. I'm not a developer. Is this something that I can do? It's not really something that's spoken about. So yeah, I thought we would basically go through the upsides and the downsides of being a non-tech founder. And then maybe talk about the different options both that we used or that we didn't use but 
would be available to us if we were trying to get started as a non-tech founder. I've been thinking about a lot about this, obviously, while preparing for the episode. And I actually, I don't know how you feel about this, Nathan, but I feel like being a non-tech founder is ultimately an advantage long term. And the reason I think that is because I think even though being a non-tech founder, it's really hard to get started and get that initial MVP out because you can't build the product yourself. I think it kind of forces you to be really strong at things like sales and things like marketing. And those are so much, I don't know what, I don't really want to say more important, but in some ways they are more important than the actual product. They're also harder to hire for. So if I wanted to hire someone who was doing sales and marketing, I think that would be a much more difficult hire than hiring a developer. The flip side to that is, of course, that you would you wouldn't need to hire someone for sales and marketing until you have, until you're earning a decent amount of money. Whereas as a non-tech founder, you sort of need to hire a developer up front when you might not have that income coming in. But I wouldn't change the fact that I'm a non-tech founder because I think that it forces me to do the things that really grow the business rather than being stuck in the product. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, the first question I have is, but would you like to add the ability to develop your own products and then you would be lethal? <laughs> <laughs> so funnily enough, I was on another podcast the other day and... Um, Which? Do tell, do tell. It's uh, Arvid's podcast. Okay. Yeah. And he uh, asked me the exact same question. I have actually thought about this a lot since I was thinking about it last night. So my answer to him was, no, I wouldn't want to add it. But then if a genie came down and said, hey, you can, I'm going to give you the powers to suddenly be a developer as well and add it to your skill set. Of course, I wouldn't say no to that. Like, actually, the answer is yes, of course I would. But I don't know how I feel about that because I do feel like if I had the ability to code, I would be spending my days in client portal creating new features. I would be fixing tickets, you know, when a ticket comes in and someone's a bit upset about something and you just you'd want to just like dive in and help them I, I'm pretty sure I would be doing those things and not to say those things aren't valuable you know obviously new features are important I wouldn't be able to help myself spending more time on that side whereas the way I've got it set now is that we have a really clear roadmap that I share with my developer I sort of feel like I steer the ship in a way I look at the emails from customers I don't do an awful lot of support anymore for client portal because we have someone who does support and then anything bigger we have our developer who does the book fixes but I always read the emails at least in the client portal inbox so I have an idea about what people are saying how people are using it I also use the product myself quite a lot because I, I actually find it really useful which is great for lots of different things that I do I think having a portal is useful even for this podcast for example I think it would be sort of great to just have all these little bits that we've got, like the link to this, the Riverside that we use, and then the link to the Google Docs where we write notes, yeah. and the link to the analytics, just all those bits, it would be really nice to have it in a portal. So I use it a lot. So I know I've got an idea of where it needs to go. And so I quite like that I I just kind of lay that out and we have a really clear timeline. My developer is amazing. She's always you know, working on things and we, we have things come out. Sometimes it's a bit slower than I would like, but that's 
on me, not her, because that's the amount of hours that I pay her to do. If I was a developer, I think features would come out faster because I'd be so desperate, especially if it was to help a customer. And maybe they wouldn't be tested as thoroughly, or maybe it would cause unforeseen problems that I hadn't thought about in the future. And I honestly think if I had the ability to code, I'm not convinced Client Portal would be actually be a better product. It might be a fatter product, but not better. Mm. So, do you think, yeah. Do you think it... Do you, do you think it makes you more objective about the product? Not being a developer. Not touching everything within the product. Not having to get to everything yet. And in this case, the, the feature development itself. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, I think it allows me to keep more of a high level view on the product itself and where it's going. And the great thing about my developer is she she is in the product. So she can tell me if I have an idea for something. She can tell me all the different edge cases that I might not think about. So I feel like we're a really good team in that way because, you know, she's deep in the product. I'm more like floating above it. I feel like it works really well. And I do think to myself all the time, I'm glad that I can't code. But then again, if a genie comes down and asks me, would you like this skill? But I feel like I'd say yes to any skill. If anyone offered me any skill, I would say yes to it. If there was it. no time investment, then yeah, anything, yeah. Would, anything would be awesome. Exactly. But I'm not going to put the time into learning how to code at this stage. It's just not at this point going to happen. So Yeah, and people have said that to me loads as well. Like, well, why don't you just learn some, you know, just start learn, learning some Ruby or start learning some basic, you know, HTML and just so you can have an idea really what's going on. And I have tried loads of times and it's not that I don't want to because there is something very magical about putting a piece of code in and then getting something out, you know, it actually doing something, which is completely different to sort of static design, shall we say. There is that appeal, but yeah, at this late stage, I just don't have the time. And if I did have the time, I probably wouldn't have the inclination. <laughs> I'd probably find it something else to fill that time. So there obviously isn't a huge desire within me to, to do that, but... It's interesting though, because I think for the beginning stages of a project, it would be awesome to be able to just get something rough down, you know, get that really bare bones MVP down just to see whether it has legs. Because I think even getting the MVP done is costing me quite a bit of money. So there is that initial payout that you have to say goodbye to, 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 to even check whether this is really going to work or not. I think for me, that is a bit of a, a bit of a downside. But at the same time, as you said, it does mean that we can focus on other areas. And I've never really thought of myself as being a sort of sales or marketing person. But like the last couple of months, I haven't stopped. Like I haven't stopped talking to people. I haven't stopped sending things to people. I'm probably annoying a few people as well. And it seems to be working. You know, it seems to be pushing the product in, a, in, in the right direction, even though it hasn't been launched yet. I mean, yeah, it would be great to have a bigger beta list, you know, beta access list. But outside outside of that, it, it is forcing me to to push forward on these areas because I can't do the development. You know, what else am I going to do? Like you said, I've got to look at the bigger picture and the bigger picture right now is just trying to get as much interest around this as I can and boosting the domain um, ratings, you know, and getting content and links and all that stuff that if you are doing everything, I think as a solo founder is a lot to ask. Yeah, it's 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 too much really i know some people manage it but it's um it's difficult i feel like if you have your head in or head in too many things you end up sort of being mediocre at everything and not excel at one area or one or two areas which are really important in terms of how to be a non-tech founder then the most difficult thing as we've both 
pretty much established is getting started. So you you want to sell a product, but you don't have the ability to build the product. So what do you do? And I know we've both done, I think, fairly similar things. I went down the audience first route, which is I couldn't build a product, but so I built an audience and I built an audience initially granted it was for teaching developers how to design. And then it ended up being more along, you know, I ended up doing more on client portal than that, but I built the audience first and then I pre-sold client portal to my existing audience, which gave me the funds that I needed to hire a developer. Um, So I went and I actually found a developer and got a rough costing first before I pre-sold it. And just to see how much it would be, how much I would need to raise in order to do this. And so I pre-sold the product and made that and more, which was really great. So I got to actually make the product. The downside of course to that is if I didn't make that money, I would have the decision, do I just refund everyone or do I put some of my own money into it or what do I do there? Luckily that didn't happen, but it's, I, I think of it like a Kickstarter. You know, If it reaches its goal, I'm gonna put this into development. So you tell me whether this is something you really want. And I think that's a powerful message because people don't want to risk it's not being made and if their contribution is what could stop it they're more likely to buy rather than if there wasn't that there they might just say well I'll just wait until it's made and then I'll make a decision so that really helped me that was how I did it but you've got two different routes that you took so one for Newsy, and then the other for uh, feature flux right so what did you do for those so Newsy. Basically, I, I did actually get the MVP. I paid to get the MVP done very cheaply by some money that I had already put away. So that I put a limit on what I was willing to spend. And if there was going to, you know, if I could get even just the tiniest bit of traction, then I would think about moving forward. But I was lucky enough in that very quickly after launching that um, I actually started working for a startup in Madrid and Michael, my later co-founder, happened to be a developer there. So he was he ended up freelancing on it. And then later came to me and said, hey, you know, would you rather just I came on board as a co-founder and then we can forget about all this back and forth on the costs. You know, that was it. That wasn't something I was looking for, but it, it was just something that came to me. So the co-founder route is, I think, is an obvious and a, and a, and a very common um, occurrence, but it's also something very difficult to pull off. It's like being married. I mean, your co-founder is a very difficult relationship to get right because, you, you know, you're going to be... There are, there are a few things in life that make anybody nervous or, or tense or argue. And one of those is money. And, you know, we're better to argue about money uh, than in a startup. So I think it's it's an easy option, should we say, but it's also very difficult because you have to find the right person. So luckily that worked out in the case of Nusi. With Feature Flux, it's, I'm kind of trying to build the audience I wouldn't say it's exactly audience first, but I'm definitely trying to build it in parallel to building the product, you know, so coming back to Twitter so late after being away and trying to create new content, build links, reaching out to old, you know, networks and all that kind of good stuff. And of course, the podcast is part of that with the audience first, you know, trying to create awareness for a product that doesn't yet exist. But I think it's more an audience, a parallel as opposed to audience first. I would love to be in the situation that you were in, you know, back in the day with that list and client portal. If you can do that, the advantage is huge. The problem with audience first is that uh, you have to put in a lot of work and it takes a long time. So if you're in a hurry to to build a product and your intention is audience first, then you could be waiting a long time. I th- 
think nowadays, I think, I don't know, but from what I see on Twitter, I think a lot of people are doing the audience parallel building kind of thing, I think, because, yeah. and I think also in part because they flip between so many different products, like one fails and so they're like, hey, I'm going to start a new idea. And, you know, so it's constantly, the, you know, the building public hashtag on Twitter, obviously, you know, you see it all over the place. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the audience first taking a really long time because it does. It's, I talk to so many people who are trying to build an audience, but they are trying to build it quickly. And I don't know, I'm sure some people manage it, but I, I didn't. It took me years, years of building an audience. And granted, I was freelancing at the time, so I wasn't doing it full time, but I was sort of trying to consistently show up. At the time, it didn't feel consistent, to be honest. It felt like I was really like half-assing it to really but looking back I'm like actually no I was consistent because yeah okay they were blips when I wasn't writing any guest posts or going on any podcasts but I always came back to it so in hindsight yes I was being consistent at the time it didn't feel like it but it was slow especially I mean those first 10 subscribers and then the first 50 and the first 100 I think getting to a thousand is the hardest really I think once you once I passed a thousand it just just kept going up not massively quickly it was it was slow but that first thousand was just if I was relying on it for any reason if I didn't have my freelancing that it would have been too painful and I probably would have quit because it is it's not quick and I think sometimes it's good to jump from product to product and you know fail fast um, but sometimes I think that some people maybe don't let the give the product enough time to actually gain some traction because it does take time. And I think people are also a little bit wary. I know I am. When I see new products, I've been in situations where it's ended up not being looked after and not being worked on, maybe being sold, but often just left. And yeah, so when I see, yeah, when I see new products, I'm hesitant. I don't want to use a new product unless i especially when it's a new product that is you know is by an indie founder and is also free yeah <laughs> the, it's it's kind of like the 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 double threat of mm, how long is this going to be around for yeah because there's only so much time unless you have a big plan when you're an indie founder it's hard to establish that sense of, of trust on a new product but i think there are people who do it and there are people who would do it well and i'm not quite sure what the secret sauce is there but um, I think it's, it's important if there obviously is a future, but again, it's difficult to know. I mean, how it's difficult to know how much of a future there is in any any new product. We always always want it to go the distance, but yeah. um, it's hard to tell. I think um, the newest product that I have pretty much bought into is a, is Reform, um, and mm -hmm, I know yeah. the founders of that, and that's part of the reason but even that alone isn't necessarily going to get me to buy into a product because basically reform is a form tool so something like Typeform. but it's it's I actually, super... I actually signed up for it as well a couple of weeks ago oh nice i i, yeah. I suggest i asked i asked on twitter if there was a, a, a cheaper alternative to uh type kit is it type not type Typeform. Um, type form because it's 30 30 euros a month for like very yeah. uh, very low threshold so anyway, and basically everybody, well, a lot of people recommended reform. I think I think that helps having people, because I saw the same, people always recommended it. And what I liked about it personally was I liked the minimal but nicely designed form that could fit into any brand. My issue with type form is that it's always going to look like a type form. And I don't want mm -hmm. that. I want it to look like a form that I built myself. So that was really important to me. 
But I think the most important thing was I was constantly seeing the founders post updates and talk about it. And you could tell this was their full-time thing. You could tell they weren't doing things on the side, that they weren't just like checking in when they get time. It was, they were on it. And that proved to me, I thought, yeah, I, I think they're gonna be around for a really long time. I might end up being wrong, but they ended up, because of their constant, you know, talking about it and just the way they conducted themselves, it felt, it just, felt like it was going to be a long-term thing they weren't so scatty one thing with with reform uh, along with many other sort of products at least that i know and i'm sure you know as well you know a lot of them have gone into those early stage investment funds you know like tiny seed and calm reform i believe was in uh, or is in tiny seed zip message is i think has funding from calm and i can think i can think of a bunch of friends who are through i've gone through one of those smaller funding things so i think it's another it's, it's another it's another possibility i don't think it's a very early stage possibility because you need to have something there for any any fund to be interested in you you need to already have committed <laughs> a certain amount of, of money and time up front you know to have customers and recurring revenue so while something like these smaller funds i think are interesting and it's definitely something i'm interested in for the future it's not you know, it's not something that you can just get started with, like building an audience, for example. Like you can just get started with no money building an audience. Yeah. So I suppose that's another point. So how to be a non-tech founder. Investment is another option. But I, so I haven't looked too much into Tiny Seed or Calm. I've looked a little bit into Tiny Seed, but I don't know what their requirements are. So are you saying that these investment, they need you to already have something built and already be having paying customers yeah. or would they invest need, in? No, they won't invest in an idea. You need to have, you need to have recurring revenue. I think the official line on the website on Tiny Seed is like 10,000, but then I heard that it got dropped down and I think they will actually take anybody from $500 a month recurring and up. But I guess for that low amount, they need to see, you know, some serious intent from the founder and also growth as well. I'm guessing, you know, if you're at 500 MRR and, and growth is significant, then I guess it's different. But when I saw that it had actually changed, I think for the original figure was, I think from 10,000 MRR, and now mm. they're willing to go down to 500 MRR. I thought that was really encouraging, especially for those smaller indie founders. And let's face it, I mean, something like Tiny Seed, that's who they're, they're targeted. Um, I suppose that doesn't help the non-tech founder though, does it? Because it doesn't, it doesn't, no, it doesn't from the immediate standstill. No, I think you yeah. would have to look at some other way of getting your, you know, your, your business off the ground. And so, you know, you've got the audience, like I said, takes a long time. You've got the co-founder route. That's a hard sell for any, any way, because if you offer 50% of nothing to a co-founder, then that's 50% of nothing until something might possibly start earning money. And then you've got consulting, which we've both kind of done as well. I think it's kind of what I'm doing now. It's what I did in the past when Nusi was born. Well, you were consulting as well when Client Form, sorry, Client Form, when Client Portal kicked off, right? Yeah, I was still freelancing then. Client Portal ended up eclipsing that so I could stop freelancing at the same time, which was nice. That is really your options if you're a non-tech founder to build a product. It's basically audience first and do some kind of pre-sale Kickstarter that takes a long time. Co-founder, that's in my opinion, and I think yours too, quite high risk because 
you know, is your co-founder going to be as invested as you are? And it's always going to feel like your baby if you're the one that came up with the idea. Mm-hmm. And if it becomes really successful, would there be any resentment there? And how do you balance like, oh, you're not working on this full time, I can tell, but I am, but we still have 50%. Like, ugh, it's just messy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't messy. do a co-founder route. And then the other option, yeah, is save, like just save money from consulting, um, your day job perhaps. I have the Whatever. feeling that this is the most taken route, investing your own money for non for non tech founders. I think it's just investing your own money, like you say, whether that's from consulting or your day job, because it's the the most accessible and it's the quickest. I think it's the quickest route to getting a product done. Yeah, you know, but you do have to spend that money. I think another possibility as well is, and we haven't really touched on it uh, yet, is is the whole no code thing. It depends. It depends what you want, the kind of product you want to build, because you know, if you're remotely, I was going to say tech savvy. If we're, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably are. But the whole no code thing. As, as well you know requires a certain amount of learning but it's also limited in, in what you can create for example a few people a few technical people actually said to me uh well why don't you do the the feature flux uh, mvp in no code uh, and i said because you can't <laughs> it, it's not possible i actually spoke to some no code experts i feel like i should say air quotes around experts which is horrible it's kind of demeaning to no code people but there just seems to be so many of them out there because it was too limited to be able to build build the kind of product i wanted which meant i had to go down the code route but i know a lot of people are building their mvps and even you know even beyond mvp in in no code yeah i haven't looked into no code at all i just don't at this point i wouldn't trust it because i know from client portal there's always going to be things that crop up that you need to do And it's so, I imagine it would be so frustrating being limited in that way by the technology that's available now. And I don't, I haven't seen, I don't know if it's good enough, but like I said, I haven't looked into it to really be able to take on that. Like I like if there's an issue with client portal, I know that my developer will be able to solve it somehow. Don't know how, but she just, you can pretty much do anything. You don't have to worry about that, do you? You just (laughs) pass it along. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it was something no code, it's like if I even try to design my own website in like a page builder or something like that, I just feel it would just be too frustrating. I don't want to be limited in that way. So I get that completely. Yeah, I wouldn't go down the no code route, but that's not to say that might just be me showing my age and I don't get this new thing that's coming on. <laughs> this distrust of these newfangled technologies. Yeah, all these kids doing their no code. But I think it will become really good. I, I, I'm sure it's, it must be the future. Well, because Rob Walling is constantly singing no code, uh, no code's praises, especially or particularly, I should say, for those early stages of a product, you know sort of for removing that initial cost and for testing you know and all these kind of good things so he's he's talking about it a lot if i could definitely try something out quickly and i thought it was going to be valuable then yes but in my case it wasn't uh, it couldn't help me at all you already said you know you don't really have any desire to to, to learn to learn code you know you're, you're quite happy being on the other side of things do you think that you can take the business as far as you want you know staying in that sort of bubble should we say in that place because i can only think of i can only think i can actually only think of one non-technical founder who's running a very successful SaaS, who's you know run it like that from the start 
and you know they've been through tiny seed and and everything so i don't know do you think it's possible to go all the way to the top baby being a non-technical founder i think so i i think it definitely i think the hardest part of being a no-tech founder is just getting started but once you're started you can you know you can hire well you can you know there's just a lot more options available to you i wouldn't at this point bring on a technical co-founder you know never say never of course but it's just not something that's on my radar i don't see it as limiting i just see the getting started as limiting because even when we talk about you know your options when getting started oh just invest your own money that's not always easy like people maybe don't they've got like higher expenses they've got you know lot of stuff to pay for cost of living's going up they might not have the extra money or have the means to get extra money and you know it's not as easy as it sounds or build an audience first again that's not as easy as it sounds it takes a really long time so I think the biggest hurdle is just getting started but once you're started once you're going you can I don't think there's any reason you can't go further and I think the reason we don't see many non-tech founders is just because that initial hurdle is so difficult to get over but what do you think? That makes me that makes me wonder actually whether we are the underwhelming <laughs> or overwhelming minority then when it comes to founders. You know, are most founders technically orientated, you know, or do they come from somewhere else? Because if I think of, I can think of other SaaS or I can think of other, you know, if you think of um, Steli from, what was it? Was it? Um, yeah, uh, Steli FD, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, and obviously they grew a business and and Steli is a salesman you know and the person I was referring to just now is, is Craig from Castos you know and they're obviously doing really well in the podcasting space and I think um you can definitely take the skills that you already have and apply them to the to the to the business you're trying to build um obviously Steli was a salesperson and Craig was an engineer so building out things I think you know is is part of that regardless of whether you actually code or not so yeah I yeah. don't know I think it's just I think we're seen as being the minority at least because we tend to stay uh, as what we do for a living you know whether that's a designer or a marketer or uh, maybe we come on as a co-founder because somebody does need a marketer because somebody does need a designer but being that solo founder as a non-technical person I think is like you said it's harder to get into because you either have to have that money you have to be willing to put in a lot of time to build up the audience you have to take a big risk and take on a co-founder friends and family but even that i think is a hard sell because if you're new to the world of products and generally i think our families don't really understand what we do anyway you know we just we just work online or we just design websites or whatever so i think asking for money for something there i think as well can be a bit of a weird a tough sell as well so I mean, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It's hard to get started. But once once the ball is rolling, then I think we're in as good a position, I think, as, as any to build a, a successful business. Most founders I know are technical. They're developers. I'm trying to think of any that I know who aren't. And I would say the only ones I can think of are ones that have built different businesses first. So something like course creation or info products or that kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's another route and it's it's kind of the route I took it if you think about it which is I started off as a freelancer and then wanted to get into product but because I couldn't code I got into info products and then I got into an actual product but by then I was established enough that I had the audience that I could then utilize to help me build the product so maybe there's just an extra step in the middle and get into selling something um, because I think the mindset of selling a lot of people do take that exact same route. So they are freelancers, they're working for themselves and 
they want to get more into products because they realize that actually I'm still just trading time for money, which isn't really that fun. But they, yeah, I think maybe just figuring out what you can sell because, you know, they're used to selling high touch. They're selling one product or one service to one client. The mindset of selling something smaller to lots of people is different. Like you do, you use different tactics. There are different ways of speaking. There are different things that you do in order to do that. So I would say as a little step up to get to where you want to be, just try selling something. Like what do you have that you could sell that people would find useful? Is it templates? Is it your knowledge? Is it whatever? And just start building that way is the route I would go down. But again, that is slow. But sounds yeah. okay. Like, but it's, it's, no the, it's the stair step approach that you know Rob Walling is always talking about as well, and has been talking about for years. You know, starting off with that initial step and then growing from there. So, like, don't jump into a SaaS if this is the first digital business you've ever tried to create. You know, even if you are a designer, it's going like you say, going from selling to one person. You know, i.e., your client to having to take on a lot of roles and selling to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways is um yeah it, it's a world apart so that that stair-step approach i think is particularly what i was going to say particularly to us as, as non-technical folk but i think to anyone is a valuable sort of way to go because you have to learn all these other aspects and particularly you know in the in the with regards to developers the marketing you know so if a developer who was you know that sort of lethal threat of well i can build my mvp uh but then you have the marketing as well, which is, you know, famously the bane of any of any developer's life. Yeah, I can build a product, but then later, what happens? So with, with those steps, those small, you know, steps, I think it's you can learn a lot of those other things that later will come in very handy for trying to sell digital products and larger digital products like, you know, SaaS businesses, for example. Yeah, because a SaaS is so much harder to sell than a digital product a digital download you know a recurring subscription that is a hard ask for people because people are honestly tired of subscriptions they're tired of everything being this infinite cost over and over again every single month for the rest of my life if i sign up today like that is a that's a huge thing to ask of someone um, and I think people are getting tired, just like they're getting tired of Black Fridays, they're getting tired of subscriptions, but... Completely, and and I'm noticing it more and more myself now that paying a recurring cost for a SaaS now is just, it's like, seriously, another one? Which was why, as well, I think you have to be very careful about the audience you choose to serve with your, or the customer, because a business is not going to really, a business of a certain level is not going to think twice about having to pay that recurring cost, you know, whether it's $49 or $299. But a, a consumer or a pro-consumer, which is what I am, it's the businesses and the larger businesses that don't really see that I don't think you know so much so yeah. Um, yeah very important as well yeah exactly but then with that there are extra hurdles with selling as we found out we talked yep. about earlier with the selling to enterprise businesses it's a lot for them to the cost is not a roadblock for them but the process of getting it integrated into their company is huge so there's yeah. there's just different there's just different levels of difficulty in terms of when you're selling online i think you know high touch services are probably one of the easier info products digital products easier um when you get up to SaaS and enterprise sales it just gets harder and harder not to say you can't do it but um because of course you can people can but yeah just maybe 
doing what Rob Walling says, which is the stair-step approach, I think would be the most sensible way to go about something unless you just happen to have a lot of savings behind you somehow. So I think that's a good stopping point really because yeah. I feel like we've talked about, yeah, everything related to being a non-tech founder. I, at times I felt like, wow, this is really depressing because it's actually really hard to be a non-tech founder. But I'm optimistic that actually the things that we've spoken about today, I'm hoping it's somewhat, for people who are listening, who are hoping to become a non-tech founder, I'm hoping it's a little bit, Yeah, I don't daunting. think it's too heavily swayed one way or the other, you know, whether you need the development skills or not. I think there are advantages and disadvantages to both sides. You know, as we've said, you know, if you are that developer, you know, solo founder developer, then there are other areas where you probably don't excel um, and we do. So, <laughs> so yeah. Yahoo sucks to you. So you know what I mean. It's um, yeah. Everyone's it, got their own unfair advantage. Completely, completely. And you, you really have to lean into that. You really have to lean into whatever that unfair advantage is. So we'll leave it there for today. Then um, I don't know what we're talking about next time because we haven't figured that out yet. But it will be interesting as always. I'm sure. The only thing we should say is um, if you're if you're enjoying these episodes, it would be really amazing if you could go and go ahead and leave us a review on whichever app you're using, whether that's iTunes or, or Spotify. We'd love to get more people uh, love to get more people listening to the show. It'd be really appreciate it. And if you want to get us some feedback, you can you can grab us on Twitter. And I now I have to remember the Twitter handle. It's uh, non-tech podcast. I believe that is it. At non-tech podcast. Uh, so just give us a shout on there and let us know what you think and uh, any questions you might have. We'd love to we'd love to answer them on the on the show. Yeah, perfect. All right, I will uh, we'll leave it there and I will see you next time. Okay, Laura. Have a great day. You too.